with us and track with us. This is our plus one year. And if it's your first time here this morning, just a brief explanation is that I believe that Jesus is worth sharing and not just keeping to myself. And so we're calling this our plus one year here at NCR. And we're laying some foundations from January to April. And uh, then in May, we're going to do a series called Working It Out. And then for the rest of the year, we're going to target particular topics and themes that might be really relevant to life and the world that some of your plus one connections might be interested in. And so over the next couple of weeks and the one coming up our next Engage Sunday, we want to focus on the theme of include. And so that is literally just being hospitable to people and including other people in your life. So that's kind of where we're tracking for the day. And so today, this morning, we're continuing on our theme called Upside Down Kingdom and in particular, Good News at Last. And how are we going to do this? History, the heart of the matter, and then hope. History, heart of the matter, hope. History. In 167 BC, the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes, on the 25th of December, entered into the temple in Jerusalem, and right there where the Jewish people would have been worshipping their God on the altar, Yahweh, he actually set it up as an altar to the Greek god Zeus. He took a pig and he slaughtered it and it bled down the sides of the altar and he desecrated the temple and, if you like, began an initiated worship to the Greek god Zeus right there in the Jewish temple. Well, 20 miles north, there was a father and his five sons, Matthias Maccabees. He heard of the news of what Antiochus Epiphanes had done. And that was just, if you like, the breaking of the camel's back. He took up arms and in that very moment he started up an initiation, a warfare, a guerrilla warfare against the Seleucid Empire that had taken over Palestine, modern day Israel. And in that very place, he started the guerrilla warfare that lasted for the next three entire years. You see, what Antiochus Epiphany had been doing was trying to Hellenize or Greekify the Jewish nation. Over the past number of years since the Seleucids had made their world domination power right there in that particular precinct of the world, they had tried to initiate all the Greek-style culture within that land. They had worn the clothes, the language of uh, they, they went ahead and in, indoctrinated people into the amphitheaters and the sporting events that would have been uh, known as a Greek culture, Hellenized world. Even so much to the extent that Antiochus Epiphany had forced people, if you like, for some of the male Jewish people to, um, if you like, reverse the signs of circumcision. So was the power and the authority that Antiochus Epiphany had over that Jewish nation. Wow. His power reigned so predominantly they called him the madman, although he called himself Antiochus the Illustrious. <laughs> Antiochus Epiphanes, which simply meant God incarnate. Right there. So over the next three years, Matthias led guerrilla warfare. And if you like, his, his one act, defined act of drawing a line in the sand, mobilized so many other of his countrymen, his fellow citizens, that they took up arms. And his son, one of his sons, Judas, otherwise known as the Hammer, Maccabees, literally did that for the next three years. They tried to hammer out the Seleucid king and his armies from their nation. On the 25th of December, three years after Matthias had drawn a line in the sand, his sons, his family, 
had led a revolt that retook the temple, that retook Jerusalem, that defeated the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes, defeated his armies and pushed him out. And right there on the 25th of December, he entered back into the temple. He, if you like, reconsecrated that, lit the candle menorah and celebrated the new feast of God's liberation for their people. That celebration still occurs today in many Jewish families in the celebration of the Festival of Lights, otherwise known as Hanukkah, because of what Matthias had done. And for the next 100 years, they set up their own reign, their own kingdom, right where they were, in that place, as God's representatives leading the nation. And if you had said to a Jewish person back at those times, was Matthias Maccabees or any of his sons the Messiah? They would have said to you, well, he is a Messiah because a Messiah should do four things. The first one is this. If the land is being occupied by pagan armies, they should be defeated and flushed out from the land. Secondly, they should go ahead if the temple has been destroyed or desecrated, it should be reconstructed, if you like, cleansed. The third thing that should happen is that whoever's led that should become king and be God's representative here on earth. And fourthly, there should be prosperity and peace that should reign throughout the land. That's what messiahs do. So when you look at this image of Idi Amin and ask a Jewish person back then in that particular time, what kind of messiah were you looking for? It's much more self-styled off that image than maybe the image that you might have of what a messiah does. The only tragedy was in 63 BC, the new superpower flexed its muscles in the Near East. Pompey enters Jerusalem, captures it, walks into the temple, desecrates it once again because he enters the most sacred space within the temple, the Holy of Holies, the place where only the high priest once a year would come and interact with the God who dwelt in there, Yahweh who would come and dwell within that particular place. And he went in there, if you like, to say that the Roman eagle is stronger and bigger than you, Yahweh. And as he walked in there, he was shocked to find that the image he anticipated would be in that Holy of Holies was not there. In fact, the space was vacant. If you had asked a Jewish person, why was that? They would have said, well, it's because God is not represented by any form, any object, any created thing, but rather human beings who are made in his image are his image bearers. That's why there is nothing in the sacred holy of holies apart from his presence. If you had asked a Jewish person at the time of Jesus, is everything well? They would have said to you, everything is not well well at all you see the heart of the matter the heart of the matter is this we have been chosen and we are a people who have been elected and called to be if you like a people of light remember our ancestor abraham god revealed himself to him and said through us a mighty nation will be formed and you will be like my light to the nations if you like, you will, we will reflect the living God and the creator being back into the world and we will have a job to do and a task at hand. If you like, God promised to Abraham that you would become a mighty people that would actually do something in the world. You would have a job. 
And so God led Abraham, if you like, down to Egypt. And in Egypt, he formed a mighty people. Through him, a nation was born. And as Moses was leading them out of the desert, he gave them his commands, his life-giving good commands. And said, if you do this, you will live and you will shine my light into the nations. And they will see how I've created people to be and to live. That if you like, my wise order and my wise, if you like, creative work will continue on through you. And you will govern and rule as kings and queens of this world. And other people will see and discover what I'm like through you. But the only problem was, is that those same very people, the ones he called his son, just like Adam and Eve, if you like, they turned their heads away from the living God and turned it inwardly towards themselves. And if you like, the same problem and the disease was in them that was the same problem and the disease that's in you and I is that we have this radical addiction to ourselves, our own radical self-sufficiency that inadvertently says to God, I want to rule myself and I want to please myself and I want to serve myself. Thank you very much. And it was in them too. And so in that place, when they turned their backs on God, all kinds of evil perpetuated and they began to treat human beings, not in the image bearing nature that God intended, but for their own purposes and deeds. And it became dark. And so God sent them away. And then after 70 years, after being in that distant place called Babylon in exile, he brought them back to the land again. And if you would have asked a Jewish person who lived in the time of Jesus, is all well with you? They would say, no, it is not. Why? Because the promises that God made to us have not been fulfilled. No one has come to liberate us once again. And what we want and what we need is a freedom that nothing else can afford to us and buy to us because Rome still rules. God is not on his throne and we are not our own people once again. They would refer back and they would say to this, remember, God gave us a job to do. He said, now, if you obey me fully and keep my command, then out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession or the whole earth is mine. You will for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words... When God, when people, the rest of the nations look at you, you will act like a priest. You will collect up all of their worship and adoration. You send it up to me and I'll reflect my image back through you and people will see what the living God, the creator, the maker of the universe is like. He says, but not only did we have a, a, a vocation to do, remember you promised us when we were in exile far away from you, you said this. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all of your idols. And then you will live in the land I gave to your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. But the time in which Jesus arrived, that even idea of kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God had been turned into a catchphrase slogan that was fomenting in the minds and the bodies and the blood of those Jewish people. And they would declare through gritted teeth, there is no king but God. He is not Caesar. He is not Antiochus Epiphanes. There is no king but God. And if you heard of asked the Jewish person then, what do you hope for? They would say, what do we hope for? We hope, we hope that one day God would rule 
that a Messiah would come, a king, a son of God, that he would cleanse the temple that's in dysfunction, that he will rid the land of pagan troops, that he would set up for himself a son of God, if you like, a representative, a king, a Messiah, to rule and represent him here on earth, and that prosperity would once again flourish and peace would reign. That's what we hope for. It's always winter in Narnia. Never Christmas. What do you mean, says Lucy Pevensey? Always winter and never Christmas. (laughs) Mr. Tumner says, oh yes. When the darkness has come, it's always winter in Narnia. Never Christmas. But for hope. And then, a cousin of Jesus, by the name of John, comes announcing a message in the wilderness, dressed in animal skin, eating grasshoppers, and drinking honey. And he says these words. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is coming. Now, can you feel what that may have been like to a Jewish person's ears living in the time of Jesus under the tyranny of Rome and after many successive would-be messiahs that had come and after successive reigns and kingdoms had ruled their land? And he goes on in Mark's gospel, good news about Jesus says, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the first thing a Jewish person would have heard when they heard that phrase forgiveness of sins is not that God's going to do something special for me in my heart, but God is going to finally forgive us for what we have done for when he sent us off to the exile. And now we are back in the land once again, and he is going to cleanse us and wash us and his kingdom and reign will finally come. And the good news is that justice would be put to right. Wrongs would be, if you like, righted and his kingdom and life and justice will reign. And that was good news. And then Herod took John, beheaded him, And then Jesus came announcing these words. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee announcing the God's good news. And it went something like this. The time is fulfilled. God's kingdom is arriving. Turn back, that is, repent and believe this good news. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee announcing God's good news. The time is fulfilled, he said. God's kingdom is arriving right now here in this place. Turn back, repent that is, and believe this good news. Could you imagine what was going through the minds of a Jewish person, a peasant under the tyranny of Rome when they heard those words from Jesus, a Messiah, Matthias Maccabees, in the self-styled nature of maybe an Idi Amin. What kind of Messiah and what kind of kingdom would he bring and who would he be as that king? The good news that finally arriving here on earth, just as it is in heaven where God dwells, he is bringing his kingdom. Here to earth. 
And Matthew, as he writes and he, he describes the events that took place after Jesus starts announcing this kingdom, saying, I want you to wholeheartedly turn back to God. Because I tell you what, his kingdom is coming. And as John stood in the wilderness, and as he cried out and said, forgiveness of sins is on hand, and, and, and if you like, God's kingdom is finally coming, and people would walk out to him in the wilderness, and he would plunge them in the water as a sign of being prepared for that king and that kingdom to come. And, and they would say to him, what do we do now? And he would say, wait for the one who's coming. And he plunged them in the water. And, and if you like, he purified them, and they were ready to start a new movement. And, and he would just say to them, what I want you you to do more than anything else is wholeheartedly return to God and just get ready. And Jesus comes announcing, you don't need to be ready any longer because the good news now is that the king, if you like, has come and his kingdom is on the move. So Matthew, as he records the events in the life of Jesus, in chapter 9 in the book of Matthew, he sandwiches a, a peculiar event between two other amazing events that took place. He talks about a man who has been forgiven, a paralyzed man who can walk again. At the other end, he, he describes a mute man who could speak and a blind man who can now see. And Jesus is doing this kind of stuff. And right there in the middle of that sort of layer and levels of story upon story, Jesus, if you like, has two encounters an encounter with a desperate man and another encounter with a desperate woman. And Matthew inserts them both in there for a story and a picture and for us to understand the power and the nature of what Jesus' kingdom and his kingdom is all about. And this is how it goes. There was a man by the name of Jairus. He was a synagogue official in Capernaum. And his daughter was dying. In fact, had died. He went to Jesus with a simple request, a simple desperate request he runs to jesus and he falls on his knees before him and he says master lord my 12 year old girl my 12 year old girl is dying in fact has probably died would you please come and would you lay your hand on her because when you lay your hand on her i believe in a desperate kind of faith that that you will raise her to new life Obviously, this, this man, Jairus, had heard that Jesus was performing mighty deeds. Maybe he was one of the prophets of old. And so Jesus, without, without any more hesitation, he starts to move with Jairus towards his home. And as he's moving there, there's a large crowd of people around him, and they're jostling, and they're positioning, and they're bumping into him. And, and as he moves that way, we hear of an, and learn of another woman who's discreetly, quietly just been hanging on the edges, on the fringes, if you like. And we discover that this woman has been internally bleeding for 12 years. 12-year-old girl, 12 years have been bleeding. And she's had this conversation in her own head that goes something like this. I have wasted and spent all my money on physicians to try and make me well, to make me clean, to make me pure, to fix me and restore me. And nothing has worked. But she hears that there's this man called Jesus who's announcing the good news of a kingdom to come and he's demonstrating it with power. And so she thinks to herself, if I just quietly, discreetly go and reach out my hand this time and touch the corner of his robe, then my desperate faith will tell you that I think I will be healed. And so she does. She weaves her way through the crowd as they're jostling and positioning and pushing and pulling on each other. And she reaches out in just a, a desperate little momentary act of faith and she touches the hem of his garment. And in that moment, we learn that, that Jesus actually pauses. And he says, who touched me? 
because he's felt power go out of his body. These disciples look at him and they say, what do you mean who's touched you? We're all bumping into you. Everyone's touching you. But he goes, no, no. There was a power that seemed to be initiated by a, a faith. And he pauses and he begins to survey the crowd until the woman, she knows she's undone and caught. She falls before him and she says, it's me. And she tells, tells him the whole story, the shame and the heartache. And he says to her these most amazing and profound and gentle words. Take heart, my daughter. Your faith has healed you. Take heart, my daughter. Your faith has healed you. That Greek word, that same word, sozo, saved. Take heart, my daughter. Your faith has saved you. And then he proceeds on with Jairus. And when he gets there, there's wailing and crying and screaming. And there is aching because the daughter has died. And Jesus, he pushes all of the other naysayers out and says, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. And they laugh. And he walks in just with the chosen few of his disciples and and he brings the mum and dad. And then he takes his hand and says the words, Talitha kum. Talitha kum. Which means, my little daughter, get up. And she does. And if you had have asked both of that those two desperate people that day, the desperate man and the desperate woman, what has Jesus done for you? They would say, undoubtedly, he has rescued us and he has saved us. Which begs the question, what is the question that Jesus came to answer? Even if you're here this morning and this is the first time you're hearing anything about Jesus, probably formed in your culture, in your ideas, is a question that you've formulated about what it was that Jesus came to do here on earth. In fact, if you were asked and put on the spot right now, and I won't do it, but what would be the answer that you would give? Because most people would answer, well, that's quite obvious. Jesus came to die to forgive my sins so that I can go and be with him in heaven. The only problem with that is that the Bible never really uses those exact kind of words and it doesn't do justice enough to what Jesus is doing here on earth. Some years ago, I went over to India and in that particular place, uh, we were teaching and instructing some of the uh, Indian men about how to plant churches and go back into a vastly Hindu culture and talk about Jesus. And and I asked them the same question. I said, and it was all translated in Hindi. I said, tell me, what is the good news of Jesus? And they shot up their hands as as high and straight as this. And and I asked, what what do you say? And, And they resoundedly said, Jesus died for our sins so that we can go to heaven. And I said, that's that's fascinating. I think that's what they would say back in our culture in the West as well. But now tell me, what is it that attracted you to Jesus? In the first place. And for the next hour and a half, young man after young man stood and said, someone prayed for me and I experienced the power of God and I was healed. 
Well, someone said, I was in fear of the monkey god Hanuman and discovered that Jesus had a new power so I didn't have to be afraid of him anymore. You see, one of the wonderful things about what Jesus, if you like, is trying to do and he's doing it and he begins it here and now, he's saying that the kingdom of heaven has come and how is he demonstrating it? With power. You see, if you like, if you ask Jesus, what's the question you came to answer? He would say something like this. What question have I come to answer? How about this one? What is a good God, Yahweh, going to do with a world that's gone wrong, that's been infected with the darkness called sin or a disease that darkens the mind and, and, and distorts the heart and treats and causes other people to treat one another so poorly in, in other people's eyes? What's a good God going to do with a world gone wrong? And what's he going to do? He's going to send his son who's going to inaugurate a new kingdom and that kingdom is going to come with power and it's going to restore and it's going to renew and it's going to transform this space-time as we know it. And those two human beings, the desperate man and desperate woman, were the first to, if you like, in a litany of others to discover what the power of God is like when he comes and pushes back all darkness and pushes back all evil and pushes back all sickness because that's what he says he's going to do. Jesus didn't die so that we could exit to a disembodied heaven. He brought his power to transform the hearts and the minds and this world and this dirt that's good, but that's gone wrong. Are you hearing me? Really? Are you hearing me? And this, my friends, is good news. You see, he freed the woman of her affirmity. He freed the daughter of death. That's what God's kingdom is like when a new power is in charge. You see, what are Jesus' miracles about? Are they to prove his divinity? No. Are they magic tricks so people will believe in him? No. If you like, they are signs of what God's kingdom does and will do one day when it transforms all of this earth and the hearts and minds of human beings like ourselves to be set free and liberated to be part of his new creation that he is beginning and he inaugurated when Jesus first came. And that, my friends, is good news. And so if I could summarize Mark's take, oh, one before it. We can often look at Jesus and think, I'm wrong. How could God possibly love me? But when Jesus looked out to the crowds, this is what he said. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. My friends, the good news of God he said, his kingdom has arrived in Jesus and you are welcome. And you are welcome. And you are welcome to enter it. And if you put part of your desperate faith, if you like, just your simple faith in him, his kingdom will come alive in you too. It will renew your mind and, and enliven your heart and you will become alive to him. You see, this is what made Jesus so definitely attractive 
I mean, the most desperate people would come to Jesus. Why? It's because there was something about him which they just felt like compelled to come. They didn't feel repulsed. They felt like they were attracted. Even even the people that felt worthless about who they were, they would just gravitate towards him because they heard more than anything else that his welcome was for you. And his welcome into God's kingdom was for you. And his welcome was for you. And the only thing you need to do, not to minimize it, but just to focalize it, was to say, what do you need to do if you need to do anything? Is praise your, your simple set of conviction and faith that God is acting through Jesus. He is a Messiah King. And if you place your faith in him, he will rescue you and save you and welcome you and renew you that will reach into the age to come. If I could summarize Mark, it would be this. His good news account. All the preliminaries have been taken care of. God is on the move. So put all your distractions and preoccupations aside and get on board with this great renewal train because I tell you, it will not stop until his powerful presence has transformed the entire cosmos just like the waters cover the sea. That's who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus does because that's what God's kingdom is like. It is an upside down kingdom putting the world right side up. Have I said enough? Are you exhausted? I think we need to think. Coming up, Craig. I wonder if we might pause for a moment. And I might ask you to reflect on these questions. And that my prayer, and I'll be praying as Craig's playing, is that you might meet with the powerful, living Jesus here in this place. So you might want to write some of these questions down, take them with you during the week. What is it about Jesus which makes him appealing to you? Is he? I find him quite magnificent. You see, we can often think that my inherent darkness or sinfulness means that I'm worthless. No. Don't confuse our inherent brokenness with worthlessness. He loves and he brings life and he restores and he heals. Because that's what his kingdom does. It's a new power of love which transforms. Is his good news good news to you? Is it good news? God is on the move, he is decidedly good. And we'll bring fairness and justice and right. Have you entered his kingdom?
You might have sat here for many years and thought, yeah, I come along and I believe. But you've never entered because you've never come to him and bent your knee and said, I just placed my trust and my faith decidedly in you because I see God acting through you and in you. And I so want that. So I just place my simple, desperate, little bit of faith in you. That's enough. According to Jesus. How are you orientating your life toward it? His kingdom. Do you even think about those things? And who might be your plus one? Because I don't think Jesus is worth keeping to ourselves. Oh, if anything, he's good news. God, you know all the kingdoms of the world, their comings and their goings. And you see us as kings and queens, a little lower than the angels, with the job to do of bringing your order to this world. And we are good and we are broken and, and you send your son that whoever places their faith in him, you say a new creation is born. The old is gone and the new has come. So God, I pray in this place this morning that those who are far from you might see the goodness of your gentleness and grace and come and enter and be rescued and saved and renewed. A foretaste of what's to come in full. I pray, God, that in this place, for those who have been following, that you might remind them of the goodness of your news, that evil is no longer the victor, that death no longer has any place so we can live with you and for you alive. And pray that that might be our experience and knowledge again here today. Teach us 
to be your kings and queens who have been renewed and alive because there's good news.